Now, if you'll look at the diagram you have in your book, this is the one we're moving to. This is the fundamental diagram, which incorporates a number of the elements we've been talking about. It reflects the worldview with three realms. But we're now going to talk about the functional relationships of the Christian within this realm. The first relationship is that between the believer and God. Having come from the category of unbeliever, I'm really sorry that some of you, well, you have this on your, your, the diagram, so you can follow this. But the unbeliever here, by, by way of the cross, into being a believer, which brings us, brings us into this relationship to God based on truth and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit uh, does not belong in the realm of angels. Uh, he is at this point only because it represents the, the line between man and God. He is the member of the Godhead who is uniquely ministering to man at this point, and man's being filled with the Holy Spirit is basically the process by which truth permeates my mind and controls me so that I'm operating on the basis of truth under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We'll come to that on a different diagram in a little bit. But uh, at this point, it's important to note that truth is the basis of it because we've already said that for Satan, it's, it's error, that he, he can't operate in the realm of truth because that would expose him. So we have this relationship, and uh, you will note that there is an arrow at both ends of this line indicating that it's a two-way communication. The line coming from angels has a one-way with an arrow only at the bottom. The ministry comes from God through angels to us, but not back through angels. And again, one of the reasons we are not aware of the angels is that angels are true servants. Having gone through this warfare in the heavens and having faced the issue of whether they were going with Satan and his way of pride or stay with God in the way of servitude, they chose the, the role of a servant to fulfill their created function, and that is to minister for God. So when they have ministered for God, they are fully fulfilled. They don't need my praise and my thanks. They simply get that from having fulfilled the purposes of God. And that's a true servant. He doesn't care who gets the credit on earth. The important thing is that God's will is done, that God is glorified, that his purposes are accomplished. That's all that matters. That's, that's the servant spirit as over against the spirit that says, hey, I did it. You know, I need some credit for that. I need some stroking. And we're all human enough that we need it. We ought to give it to each other up to a point, but let's not be demanding of it as a right. Okay, that's the, the one uh, role. And I, I assume that you, you know this one fairly well. The uh, color coordination on my overhead has no significance. The uh, artist that I had do this for me, I didn't even talk color with him. I wasn't thinking color. And when it came back, he had these colors on it. And I was a bit aghast that this was black and this was red. But uh, please disregard the colors and don't try to make them mean something. Uh, here is now Satan and the demons operating... Uh, in two relationships, one of them with the unbeliever, the primary tactic of Satan is deceit. Almost everything that Satan does is on the basis of deception. Uh, the lies that he tells, the demonstration of power, 
is to deceive you into thinking that he is as powerful as God or more powerful than God. It's a, a way of bringing you into a position of fear or of controlling you. And so he tries to control, says the whole world lies in the evil one. In Revelation 12, 9, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. That's his work, his deception. He cannot operate in the realm of truth that exposes him. Now, that's not to say that he never speaks the truth. He will speak the truth enough to trap you and lead you into, uh, lead you down the garden path, as it were, and then trap you with his lies. But ultimately, he uses lies to gain control. I could tell you about groups, whole churches, that have gone into what appeared to be a work of the Holy Spirit, where there were apparently the gifts operating and uh, everything seemed to be just fine for a considerable period of time. And there were prophecies and, and all the tongues and all of this. And uh, then the prophecies began to be demanding and say, don't fellowship with people outside our group and began to be rigid, you know, this is true and that's false, and began to be a little unbiblical, and the people began to get into exclusive attitudes, and then they began to have sexual problems, and people that were studying uh, for the ministry weren't studying for the ministry anymore, and marriages were breaking up, and it ended in disaster. He's very clever. He will, he will speak uh, what appears to be the truth uh, in order to trap you, and that's why we constantly have to be Alert and vigilant, Peter says. That's why in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, If one prophesies, let the others judge. It says, Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good, because Satan is in the business of counterfeiting the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God in any way he can. We'll talk about the counterfeiting in a little bit uh, in other connections, but just recognize that deception is Satan's stock in trade. He is without scruples. He will counterfeit anything. He'll give you great peaceful feelings. He will appear as an angel of light. You've read about the experiences, the out-of-body out of experiences that people have where they meet this being of light and it's so peaceful and they assure them that death is not an enemy and that they don't have to be afraid of dying and, and all of this. I don't know, and it just smacks uh, of the whole syndrome of deception where instead of speaking the truth about sin and salvation and redemption and the glory of God it's, it feeds a lie into a man's thinking and brings him under control of the lie and he'll do it anyway he will counterfeit the, the, the gifts of the spirit the fruits of the spirit uh, he can't do it very effectively often with the fruits of the Spirit, at least for any length of time, because his intent is always to destroy, and before long, you're going to find degeneracy setting in if it's, if it's a counterfeit. But we need to recognize deception. I, of all of the aspects of this subject that I deal with, the one I have the greatest concern for is, is this role of deception. I'm not nearly so much afraid of Satan's demonstrations of power. I've had them come at me and swing their fists at me and things, and I've never known a deliverance counselor to be hurt by a demonized person. They'll threaten to kill you. They'll threaten to do all kinds of things to you. And I just say, you can do nothing to me that God doesn't allow you to do. You're a defeated enemy, and I'm convinced of that. And I can face 
the power threats and so on. But I'm greatly concerned that we as the body of Christ have enough accountability to each other and enough balance within the body that we can handle his deception. Don't let Satan isolate you as a lone ranger. Don't get out here into the position where you're the, the only spirit-filled person in the, in the crowd and you're getting all the messages directly from God and you don't care what the rest of them say. You're just, just relating to God. Satan loves to isolate you. And once he gets you isolated, you're in danger. So stay in touch with the body and constantly be testing the things that come to you. The Holy Spirit is not afraid to be tested. The scriptures command us to test the spirits. Believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they be from God. If somebody's prophesying, judge. That's, that's a command of scripture, to judge the prophecies. Don't just assume that because the person says, the Holy Spirit said to me, I know churches that have been ruined over what apparently the Holy Spirit was saying, and it wasn't the Holy Spirit at all. It was an evil spirit. So don't be afraid to test. Deceit is his primary activity, certainly with the world, but it is also true with us. And the, the word deceit, I believe, is on your printed form. It's not on my overhead. The artist missed it when he did this. But deceit is still the temptation here. If he can feed a lie into your mind, he can reap all kinds of of uh, benefit from that and his, one of his favorite tactics is to put a thought in, in your mind from one side and then turn around and say hi ah, you're supposed to be such a good Christian and look what you're thinking and if you buy that that that's your thought you've given ground to the enemy in your life and I have known people who had one thought one perverted sexual thought and Satan so harassed them with that, they brought them to the point of, of suicide. Uh, they didn't commit suicide in this case, but they were seriously contemplating it because of the bondage. And the problem was not the thought. The problem was the fear that Satan had generated on the basis of that thought. And the whole thought perpetrated a series of lies. First of all, the lie that that was his thought. Second was that, that the thought represented him and that he was the person that would generate that kind of a thought. And his hatred of it, his fleeing from it, uh, demonstrated that that was a, a bald-faced lie. But Satan will tell you all kinds of lies, creating false guilt. He's a master of false guilt. Learn the difference between true and false guilt. God convicts you of sin in relation to the remedy for it. When he says you've sinned, he's always got his hand out like this, you know. You've sinned, but here's the way out. Satan accuses you of sin and say, you say you're good, but you know what you're like. You did this, you did that. You might as well give up. You're never going to be different. That's the way you are. He accuses you, gets you to feel guilty, and just developing a guilt complex. God never gives, us any, gives anyone a guilt complex. Now, he'll stick with you in relation to, to sin, if you have sin in your life, but where you have an a vague feeling of guilt that you can't tie to a sin that you can repent of and get forgiveness for, you'll be sure that's Satan's lie. Now, Satan's on the attack against us. We've already uh, identified why Satan does what he does. 
by our position as believers. He will attack us then with thoughts. He will attack us to lead us into actual sin, to get us to, to do things that we know we shouldn't do. And he will attack us with physical symptoms in our bodies. Uh, we'll talk more particularly about this uh, in just a little bit. But at least those three areas would be areas of his attack upon us. We're told then that we are to resist him steadfastly in the faith. And the question is, how do you resist the devil? Well, you resist him along a different line. You do not resist him back along this line. We have no ability of our own to resist the devil. I don't say to Satan when he attacks me, look, Satan, I'm a professor at Trinity Seminary, and you know I've got a doctor's degree. You better not mess with me. Uh, that, he just laugh and laugh. You know, that's uh, it's ridiculous. My identity means nothing. It is a totally different relationship. And it's based on what I call this line of resistance or line of authority, James 4, 7 says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, not you from him. Uh, Luke 10, 19, Jesus said to the 70, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I think it's significant that that was said to the 70 and not to the 12. I think the 70 represent the larger body of disciples as over against the 12 apostles. And it's also significant that right after this, Jesus said, Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why? Because being able to cast out demons is not some special gift that makes you better than somebody else, or makes you somebody special. That derives from your position as a child of God. Any child of God in the name of Jesus, is the victor over any demon. And no child of God needs to be afraid of demonic activity. They have the same power that anybody else has to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So that derives from my relationship to the Lord as his child, not from some special gifting that I have. And that's a critical point for us to understand. Otherwise, you know, pity the poor person who doesn't have the gifting. He's got to be always running to somebody who does have the gifting. And that's not the way it works. Any Christian has that power. Now, that's based on a consideration of Ephesians 1 and 2. And we don't have time to do a, a, a study of this. But let me just call your attention to Paul's prayer, first of all, in Ephesians 1 where he prays for them, first of all, that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's this line here. The spirit of wisdom, spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Everything starts with the right knowledge of and relationship to God. So that's where it begins. Out of that knowledge, he prays that they may know three things. First of all, what is the hope to which you are called? In other words, the long view that you recognize that our destiny is here. Our destiny is with God in heaven, not down here. And that long perspective does wonders for the way we look at, at the here and now. 
looking unto Jesus, Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And that's what we need to do. We need to have the long view. Secondly, he prays that they may know his, that is, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That's based on what he said back in chapter 1, verse 5, that in love he adopted us to be his children out of this family into this family. And by adoption, what does that make us? Heirs of God. Paul says, if children are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, I have two adopted children. They are equally my heirs with the two children that are mine by and my union with my wife, and my the birth certificate that I have at home that says I'm their father. I'm not their father biologically, but as far as the law is concerned, I'm their father. And they're my heirs, and I don't make any distinction in my will between my four children. And God says that when he adopts us into his family, we become joint heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. If you haven't meditated on that, just try it. If that doesn't stretch your mind to the breaking point, I don't know anything that will. He says, I want you to know the resources that you have by virtue of your being in the family of God. The resources of your Father are available to you. I want you to know his glorious inheritance of the saints. To make it a little more specific, he says that you may know the surpassingly great power for us to believe. For who? For us. For the believers. For those first-generation Christians in Ephesus. Uh, the surpassingly great power for us who believe. That power, he says, is like, like the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ, when he raised them from the dead, Christ having come down here and gone through this cross experience for us, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms, God's throne, the throne of Christ, far above the principalities and powers, not above in terms of geography or space, above in terms of power and authority. All authority in heaven and on earth given to Jesus Christ by virtue of his death and resurrection. That I want you to know that that's where Jesus Christ is, at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and on earth, and that he now makes available to us that kind of power. That's for us who believe. He goes on to explain that a little bit more. But moving into chapter 2, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. Notice how easily he joins together the concept of the world when you walk according to this world and the devil. And he goes on to say, all of us also had our way of life among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature. Now we've added the flesh to this trinity of evil. The world, the flesh, 
the fallen nature and the devil. That's the trinity of evil that we face. And Paul treats them all here together. And again, whenever we say, well, is that the demon or is that just the flesh? I say it's always both. Satan isn't going to stand aside and see you having trouble with some fleshly problem and not try to, to amplify it, not try and complicate it. This thing works like this, not like this. It's a, it's a, a worldview that, that is constantly in interaction. So he says, we all were like this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him, seated us with him, that is, with God, in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. These diagrams are, are crude attempts to uh, get somehow a kind of a visual representation of this, but try to, to let it really sink in. Here is the believer now, adopted into the family of God, in Christ Jesus, in the heavenly realms, right at the very throne of power, which is where, in relation to the principalities and powers? Far above. Far above the principalities and powers. And so when Satan attacks me along this line, I go along this line, and I say to him, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of my Father, I draw on the resources, my privileges as the child of God, and I command you to leave. And he's got to go. That's what makes the devil flee. When he knows that you know that this is your privilege to be in Christ. If you stand down here and try and fight him from down here, it's going to produce frustration and fear. What we often do is to, we run into this in counseling constantly, but we see people who, who picture themselves as being the victims of what someone has done to them. Here's a a non-Christian father and mother who withheld love, maybe abused them physically, maybe abused them sexually, whatever, and they all they, they see themselves down here as a victim, and here are the perpetrators of the evil, and they just can't get over this anger and, and bitterness against the person who has sinned against them. And we try to, to show them that what the Lord wants to do for them is to adopt them out of that situation into his family and by grace bring them way up to here so that you're now looking at this equation this way and you see that these people are the real victims. They're the ones who are under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in those who are disobedient and that we need to pity them and pray for them that God would release them from this because God has already released you from their bondage and brought you by grace right to the very throne of God. What a liberating, a liberating experience that is. I, I haven't experienced it to any extent the way many of the people we counsel with have. But I was in bondage to my mother, uh, who was a very legalistic Christian, and I discovered as an adult, having been through the Second World War and now in college, that I was saying subconsciously, what would my mother think of this? 
And I finally realized that what I needed to do was to look at this equation from this perspective instead of from down here. And when I did that, my relation to my mother just freed up completely. And I, I literally developed a pity for my mother. Any resentment that I had had for the restrictions she placed on us as children simply disappeared, and I just longed to see her freed from the kind of, of bondage. She was a Christian, but she was in a, a, a kind of bondage to a legalism that simply wouldn't let her enjoy life, wouldn't let her really be free to enjoy the good things that God had, had given. And uh, that's what the Lord enables us to do. And in terms of, of the demonic activity, from this perspective, we are the conqueror over every demon in hell. And there is no need for us to run from them. The demons will try to scare you off. And I, you know, I don't want to be unduly alarmist, but even as a result of your participating in these sessions, some of you may be tested in a specific sort of way uh, through bad dreams, uh, demonic uh, frightening dreams, through uh, uh, some kind of activity of that nature. Someone get locked out of their car and ask for a lot of fish? Maybe it's someone working upstairs. Okay. Uh, you may be tested. When I first started uh, working in this area, our youngest son woke up one night with a night terror. He'd had bad dreams before, and we'd always been able to wash his face with cold water, sing him songs, and, and quiet him down and put him back to bed. But this night, nothing worked until I said, let's pray. And we knelt down, and I pled the blood of Christ, the merits of the cross. And as soon as I did that, right in the middle of my prayer, he stopped fussing. And he was seeing a monster, he said, who was apparently actually seeing a demon as I perceive it now, but as soon as I prayed and claimed the power of Christ, that stopped, and he was talking to us normally. And uh, many parents have, uh, could tell you about incidents where their children uh, would wake screaming at night for no apparent reason, and it's a, it's a demonic attack, and you need to uh, understand that you, from this position, can say, I don't give you permission to attack my child, and I command you to leave. And you have that authority over your children. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, I was teaching this at the seminary, and uh, a man in the class began to relate what we were teaching to an adopted child that they had who had bizarre behavior problems, as he put it. Before the end of the week, his wife called him and said, what's going on up there? I've been having horrible dreams. And the devil was trying to say, this is what I can do to you if you mess in that area. You better just back off. And uh, that's a dangerous thing to do. The upshot of it was that this man went home and they prayed over his son and he was delivered from the demonic influence which was generated from his ancestral parentage. Uh, I talked to a man out in Salt Lake City not long ago who uh, said he was in Bible college studying to be a, a missionary, and he had one of these intimidating experiences 
And he said, boy, I don't want my kids going through this, so I'm going to back off. And I said, well, you think you've put your children in a safe place. You may really have put them in the most dangerous place in the world because you've said to Satan, I don't know a power stronger than yours, so you don't hurt me and I won't hurt you. And he isn't in the ministry today uh, because he backed off from intimidation by Satan. Don't let Satan make you back off. You take your position in Christ and say, in Jesus' name, I command you to leave. I'm not trying to, to generate uh, dramatic experiences just to help you know that Christ is the victor. And that in Christ, you're the victor over every demon in hell. Perhaps you read my article in the Beacon back in February about the lady down in Australia who was praying one day, working with Australian Aboriginal children, and uh, suddenly something swept through her body and she found herself paralyzed. She was on her knees by her bed and paralyzed and couldn't move. Thought she was having a cerebral hemorrhage and said, I gotta get to the hospital. And she couldn't move, she couldn't even move her tongue to, to holler. And so she just started pleading her position in Christ in the name of Jesus. And for 30 minutes she did that. And at the end of 30 minutes, whatever it was, the demon left her and she was able to get up on the bed and, and recuperate. But uh, that's simply an intimidation. She was witnessing to aboriginal children in the interior of Australia. And Satan was saying, this is my territory, you stay out of it. And she said, I'm here as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ and I have a right to be here. We'll talk a little bit more about that later as well. Well, any questions about this? We have a few minutes before noon. We'll have to move quickly this afternoon. Well, you will find uh, men of this, uh, people who are engaged in deliverance ministry, uh, somewhat divided over that. The fact that they ask not to be sent to the abyss seems to indicate that that is indeed where Christ sent them. Uh, and some men do command the demons to go to the abyss. I command them to go to wherever the Lord Jesus sends them. I send them to his authority, and uh, once they leave here, they come under his authority, and whatever his authority does you know, is obviously up to him. I, I really can't say much more about it. Than that. Uh, I assume that that whenever I'm doing deliverance, uh, really whenever I do any ministry, but in deliverance particularly, I am simply an agent of Christ. In my own identity, I do nothing. I'm like a, a policeman who has a badge and says, "In the name of the law, I arrest you." And having arrested them, I put them in in the custody of the judge. And uh, the badge is a, is a good illustration of the concept of spiritual authority. Uh, it doesn't matter whether a policeman is one day out of a police academy or a 20-year veteran, the badge means precisely the same thing. The first day on the force, he can arrest the most dangerous criminal with the authority of his badge, 
He may not be as good at police work as the man who's been there 20 years, but as far as authority goes, there's no difference in authority from one to the other. And that's the way it is with spiritual authority. In Christ, we have his authority, and that's absolute. So I operate only under delegated authority. He is the real power behind it. I therefore arrest the demon, as it were. I bind them with the authority I have and deliver them to the judge, and the judge pronounces sentence on them. Oh, yes. I would never try to deliver on a person who didn't, who didn't, at least if they were Christian, uh, who didn't desire it. Do you see a parallel between the three realms and the three uh, heavens that Paul talks about? Just well, the study of the vision in the third heaven seems to make that parallel between the second heaven and the realm of angels. The question is whether there's a parallel between these three realms and Paul's reference to the third heaven, that he was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, yes, probably. What he was referring to was was actually having something of a vision of deity, in a sense that you know he simply couldn't speak about. Uh, and some, I have seen a diagram where that concept was built into a diagram. I've chosen not to use it because I think it's more theological and confusing to the average layperson, particularly. So I simply talk about these three realms. Yes. Yes, I have a a whole section on that, and uh, we're running slow, so let me uh, try to run through that quickly. I see man as being body, soul, and spirit. Uh, body is the part with which I have world consciousness, soul with which I have self-consciousness, and spirit with which I have God consciousness. Uh, that uh, A lot can be said about that theologically, but uh, somewhere here, here it is. Looking at man as body, soul, and spirit in this sense, it's my understanding that what makes me a Christian is having Christ in my spirit, or the Holy Spirit living in my spirit. I see spirit as being that uniquely God-shaped vacuum that Pascal talked about, or it's the quality of being in the image of God that is so like God that only God can fill it. A demon simply does not have access to my spirit. And uh, therefore, if Christ does not reside in my spirit, I am spiritually dead. If he resides there, I am spiritually alive. That's a life and death concept. The ideal is that from this center, Christ exercises lordship over my life, and I make decisions, I think, I control my emotions in my body from this spiritual center. I am controlled. I am spirit-filled. The Holy Spirit, uh, to use that person of the Godhead, simply resides in my spirit and 
exercises sovereign control over the rest of my life. Now, that's a process of learning and growing. And what I think happens is that the spirit comes in at conversion, but by my will and my reason, I block his activity in my line, uh, in my life through unbelief, through wrong uh, belief as to how the spirit works, or through fear or other things that keep the spirit from having freedom to do what he would like to do in my life. So I need to correct my theology, I need to correct my thinking, and bring all of these under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because I am a spiritual being, however, I have the ability to communicate with uh, this evil world, and uh, these people, these beings come and attack me and try to gain entrance. They never can get into my spirit. They simply don't have access to that part of me. I believe that they're limited to, in their activity to the body and the psyche. And what they do is to tempt to a wrong thought, whatever it is. And if I give in to that, I give them ground in my life. Ephesians 4, 7, 27 says, don't give the devil a foothold, a, a place in your life. Now, he's talking there about anger, and anger is one of the ways you can give the devil a place in your life. The, at that point, you, you have opened your life to, to a demon, and he is now actively working in your, your life. The immediate response should be to recognize that that's what's happening and resist it with the power of the Spirit and uh, get rid of it. Say, no, I refuse that, and I command you to leave me. If we don't do that, he takes up a residence, as it were, and establishes a beachhead in, in our lives, and from that beachhead, he operates in our life. And the analogy here might be changed to this being a map of a country, and this is the capital of the country. The enemy isn't strong enough to overthrow the capital, but uh, they can conduct roller raids. And so they keep the country on edge, as it were, by these guerrilla raids from the beachhead they established in their life. I was just talking to the pastor that was having devotions with you this morning, and he was telling about people in his congregation that, uh, as a result of this approach, have discovered a freedom that they've never had in their lives before. I dealt with a recent graduate of Trinity Seminary within the last uh, two or three months, uh, who had uh, certain areas of bondage in his life, and after he went through recognizing what was happening, taking back the ground that he had given and commanding them to leave, he said, I've never had this kind of freedom in my life. And he'd been having these guerrilla raids in his life all the time, and he just figured this was part of being in the flesh. And it was a demonic activity that was rooted in, in uh, two specific things, that when he confessed, and uh, he'd never, never confessed them to anyone before, when he confessed them, the, the demons spoke through him. They told us that they were going to destroy his marriage. And, uh, but once he confessed them, they said to us, now he's in your control. Because through confession, he had taken back the ground they were cast out, and he says, you know, never had this kind of freedom. His wife said, the only problem is now with me, that I, I get all set for his outbursts, and they don't happen anymore. So uh, 
uh, we need to recognize that, that they do indeed operate in, in Christians, uh, not in possession. Possession would mean that we were non-Christian, that they had control of our lives, but they get a beachhead and they can do all kinds of things. By virtue of being in the body and in the mind, they can make the body do bizarre things. And we've seen these fine Christians, these graduates of Trinity Theological Divinity School, uh, you know, go into a demonic state where the demons are making their bodies do very strange things. Uh, we have to recognize that that doesn't have to happen, that the power of Christ is strong enough to control that, and once that power is, is recognized and the authority is exercised, they've got to go. So yes, a Christian can be demonized, but not possessed. <clears throat> The question is, uh, if a Christian person has been demonized, they become a Christian, does the demon automatically leave? One of two things happens. Either at the point that Christ comes into that person's life, the life is cleansed, and without instruction, this is the house swept and garnished, uh, but the person isn't instructed in, in this area of spiritual warfare. They aren't told about their position in Christ and how to resist the enemy. And the devil comes back and he knocks on the door and he recreates ground right away and he's back in. Or the, because of lack of teaching prior to conversion or at the time of conversion, or because as a part of conversion, repentance is not a key element and they don't really turn from the sin, then they simply leave the ground there. And so many people who come into conversion with resentments against parents, for example, for ill treatment, continue that resentment, and the demons say, well, hey, we don't have to go. We, this, this is the ground we have for being here, and it's still here, so we're still here. Now, they may recognize that Christ is in the Spirit, and that they, the person has become a Christian, but their ground is still there, and until you deal with that, they're going to stay there. And we've had them say, tell us, you know, nobody told us to leave. And uh, so we have to say about everything in our lives what God says about it. That includes confessing sin for sin. And it doesn't, the devil will tell you and people will tell you, you have a right to feel that way. Anybody who's been through what you've been through, anybody who's been treated the way you've been treated has a right to a little resentment. That's one of the devil's lies. You know, if you believe that, then he just camps there. And he uses that resentment to just gnaw away at your life. Uh, at time we can, we can talk more about that. But uh, there are three things, three ways that anger expresses itself. One is in rage, where you simply lash out against the person who does something against you, carried to an extreme that ends in murder, where you destroy the person. The second way is resentment, where you bottle it up inside, and it seizes inside of you, and you're just resentful against this, and that destroys you. 
And the end result of that, if carried to its extreme, is suicide. There's a third way to deal with that anger, and that is resentment, that is uh, indignation, and that's what we were talking about before, where we we look at uh, in terms of that diagram, where we look at the equation from up here, not from down here. Resentment is looking at it from down below and feeling resentful against those people that they hurt you. Indignation is looking at it from the throne of God and being indignant against Satan who does that to people. Here are these perfectly lovable parents of yours that Satan has so perverted that they've become fiends that would do that to children. And your indignation would ought to be against the devil, not against your parents. And when you can redirect your anger in the right direction, then you can, can get rid of it and uh, sublimate it in the right way. The psychologist can help you to recognize that you're angry and pound the pillows or do whatever you have to do to get rid of your, the feelings of anger, but you never solve it. You only solve it when you do it from the throne of God. But there's healing. That's, that's real spiritual healing. Time to eat. We'll uh, continue this afternoon. Good stuff. A lot of things go on in my mind when I listen to Dr. Warner talk and talk about truth uh, and protection. You know, just things sort of fall together. Pieces come together, and I really appreciate that. But I also really appreciate his use of scripture. Uh, continually, you're bringing us back to that.